Thank you for tuning in. We trust you will feel encouraged, uplifted, and inspired to build God's kingdom with us. Enjoy the message. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I told you that my mommy used to now and then raise her voice it was, uh, and say these words, for heaven's sake, what are you doing? It was quite an emphasis on those words, you know, that uh, uh, quite, quite aggressively from time to time. For heaven's sake, what are you doing? And we're turning them around and we want to ask one another, maybe you want to ask your neighbor, is what have you done this week for heaven's sake? What have you done this week for the Lord? Hey? I think it's an important question. And I know now we, most of us are uncomfortable when we say, okay, move on to the next point quickly. Because uh, I may just ask you to do that to your neighbor. But I think it's a, it's a good question to constantly, every day, ask myself, what am I doing for the sake of heaven? For God's glory. All right? I'm going to give you a couple of scenarios here today. If you, um, if you wanted me to introduce you to some colleagues or you're near with a job, or you want me to introduce you to some people you haven't met, what would you like me to say about you? Don't mention it. Just think about it. And then keep the thought in mind. What would you like me to tell others about you? I've got sort of an idea of how I would like people to introduce me, sort of some of the great things I've done. Like I've married a phenomenal woman, and I've got six grandchildren and three kids. You know, that's some of the things I've done, you know. So... Uh, so what is it that you want people to sort of know about you the moment they see you? You see, because introductions are, are quite important and they, they, they can make it or break it for you. Um, a while ago, I spoke at a, uh, at a conference and there were, there were a number of speakers and I was one of, of a number. And so they were addressed as reverend so-and-so, bishop so-and-so, pastor so-and-so. When it came to me, and this is the way I want it, uh, I was introduced as rule of quant. Now... I, I, I do like it, but you know, if I can just let my flesh come through for a moment, and you can see that, you're, that I'm not 100% out of the flesh yet, is the moment I was in, introduced as rule of quant, there was a little thing inside of me that made me sort of feel like less than the others. Who were, because I do have a title, but I don't use it, okay? And I don't like to use it because it's for the bank manager only. And, um, but I felt a little bit less than the other speakers. Do you get what I'm saying? Okay, so now, now let me ask you another question. Carl, if I had introdu introduced you to the people this morning and I say, yes, Carl, my friend, not much to look at, but he's worth listening to, how would you feel? Terrible, exactly, you know, you would feel quite terrible, eh? Uh, you know what? But you know what, in Isaiah 53, uh, that's how the leader of leaders is introduced to us. Listen to this. He grew up, before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and he was held in low esteem. That's your savior. Not the movies with this phenomenally, wonderfully built guy with a beard and glowing and so on. I don't know if Jesus was physically so impressive, according to this. I think he was quite, I was going to say ugly like some of us, but, but like normal like some of us. Normal. And, and this is how the Bible speaks about him. In, in other words, if, if I had to bring 
a, a leader up here, why do you bring this leader that I'm speaking about here and saying, this guy here is not going to win Mr. Universe. I'm now translating that verse in rule of, in rule of uh, translation. Uh, you know, here is Jesus. He's not going to win Mr. Universe. He is uh, not going to uh, feature on the, the Man Magazine uh, page. He's no model. He's, no agency is going to go after him. Hollywood is not going to really give him a job. And he will definitely not turn the heads of the female congregants when you look at him. Uh, uh, you know, he, in fact, uh, he, was, he was brought up in a little village, very insignificant little village, like a, a, a tender young person with not much physic, physicalities about him and, and so on. He was not going to be in the first rugby team either. Mm. But he will be a Blue Bull supporter. <laughs> but something about this man, I can tell you, he has come to serve humanity by carrying our infirmities, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities, and our punishment. If I had to tell you that he will not be remembered for his heroic acts like other leaders, and, and what I mean by other leaders is what do we remember other leaders? They conquered nations. They demanded respect. They subjected people to themselves. They, 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 they forced obedience. He will not be remembered like that. In fact, this Jesus that I'm speaking about this morning is not going to be remembered for where he lived or what he drove or what he earned. That's not him. Would you still follow him? Would you want him to be a leader in our church? That's what the Bible, how he introduces him to us. Leaders are famous for their sphere of dominion, their power. People that are reporting to them, their conquest, the respect they demand, and sometimes by force. What made Jesus so famous? And I've read this passage a number of times, uh, and, and it was by a visiting speaker two weeks ago read as well. What made Jesus so famous, my dear friends, is that he became the greatest servant of all. And we, we still, we've got maybe one more on the servanthood issue, and then we'll move on, and we're going to preach through the book of James in the next few weeks as well. But Philippians chapter 2, and I've read it a few times, you know it. It says, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of of a servant being made into human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on the cross therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name so that at his name at the name of Jesus every knee will bow on heaven and on earth this is the lord jesus christ let me let me give you three things this morning about servanthood i think that is so important because i think my dear friends we need to rebirth a church and i'm not speaking about the barn only i'm a rebirth a church of servants before we see the world being reached the way christ wants it to be reached the first thing is important it says servanthood is more than just a few good deeds it should be my nature it should be my nature. You see, it says Jesus took the very nature. In other words, it's something that he did. He took the very nature of a servant on himself. The first thing you've got to understand before he took the nature of a servant, that he was in his very nature, in his very likeness, God, 
until he came to earth. So when he came here, he took it upon himself. He was not someone who was at the bottom and worked his way up. He was, in fact, somebody who was at the top and worked himself down. Very different to the world system today, isn't it? Taking on the role of a servant when you have nothing, taking on the role of a servant when you have no money, when you have no status, when you have no education, when you have no chance and it's the only thing you can do to earn a little bit is one thing. But taking on the role of a servant when you are at the top and you don't have to serve and you come down to serve, that is another thing. That takes a major step. Some translations say here, in, in, if, you, if you read your own translation of the p- couple of verses I've just read, it says here, he took on the very nature. Other one says, he took on the form. Another translation says, the, I think the Amplified says, he took on the form of a bond slave. And remember I spoke about that a couple of weeks ago, what a bond slave is. You see, we sometimes look at a person, and, and, and you, may, you may be looking at Carl and say, you know, Carl is such a, a, he's got such a gentle nature. I hope so, Carl. Such a gentle, what do you mean by that? Do you mean that he now and then do, does a couple of gentle things? Maybe 10% of the time and now he's a gentle person? No, you actually don't mean that. What you mean by that is, is not he now and then demonstrates a gentle act because even a ruthless person can do that. But what you are saying is by this gentle nature, you're actually referring to Carl's nature, to his character. So you're saying that Carl behaves in a gentle manner because he is gentle that's your character that is your nature and that's what Jesus we talk about Jesus there so when I'm saying to you the first important thing here is that it's not just about a few good deeds folks because anybody can also now and then show some gentleness now and then show a few good deeds but that in essence does not make you a servant a servant is a person long before he's asked is already volunteering that is a person with a servant heart a servant nature. A person is not waiting to be served, but a person is always ready to serve somebody else. That is a person with a nature of a servant. And I think God is calling his church back to say, if you want to live like me, you've got to do this. You've got to be like me. I think if Jesus was here, he would have been an usher today. He would have parked some cars maybe. He would have been willing to say, oh, that toilet's leaking, I'll fix it. Oh, it's, it's smelly, I'll go and clean it. I think he would have been just like that as well. You see, we're talking about the nature of a person, not just one or two good deeds. I think God is calling us, church, to take on. You don't get this. You don't so much just rebirth and now suddenly you you are a servant. You've got to take it on and it is not always fun to take on the nature of a servant. That's the first important thing. The second thing that I see about servanthood in the Bible And in my own life experience, and I'm sure you can tell me stories as well about servanthood, is that servanthood requires sacrifice. It requires sacrifice. Just move me on there, please. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, it says this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and gave his life as a ransom. 
for many. Gave his life as a ransom for many. Let me take you quickly. You don't have to go there. Philippians chapter 2. Again, yeah. when you look at this, you're seeing it. Jesus gave up his right to be equal to God. When he was and he is, he gave up that right. He gave up his right to not only uh, to, to be God, but he's, uh, he gave up his right to the position and become a servant. And Mark tells us something more. Yeah. It, it tells us that he gave us his right, his heavenly position he gave up, his privileges he gave up, and he gave himself on top of that as a ransom. It, was, it would have been something if he says, you know what, I, I came down, but, but guys, I've got a fan, I need a fancy camel and a fancy place to stay in. He didn't. He gave what he had or what he could have had here as the king of kings, and he says, I'll give, and then I'll give you my life. Now, I normally remember the ransom bit because I, I'm, I'm very thankful for that. And a ransom is basically a large sum of money that you pay uh, that is demanded when somebody has been kidnapped, taken captive, a prisoner, and you pay that amount of money. Now, a ransom is not n- normally, probably never, <coughs> an amount that the redeemer can afford. And it wouldn't be much then. If I say to you, uh, um, um, you know, I'm going to take your daughter captive this afternoon, and if you give me 20 bucks, I'll give her back to you. You'll go, oh my goodness, man, just leave the daughter, just take the 50 bucks, you know. Uh, you, you, that's not a ransom. But if I'm saying to you it's going to be 50 million, you're going to, wow, wow, wow. You know, I don't have this money. How am I going to get this money? I, I didn't say, I'm not saying Jesus didn't have it in him to do this. I'm just saying it cost him a lot. But you know what? So, so I'm quite happy with this ransom hanging on a cross, dying for my sins. But when I look at Jesus' life in the New Testament, I see some other stuff, and I'm going to go only in one or two today, that makes me think that he paid more than just the death on the cross when he became a servant. Listen to this. Mark chapter 8, verse 90 to 20. We're not going to go there. Uh, you can write it down. Luke chapter 9, 57 to 58. Jesus Jesus is speaking here to a scribe, a younger man who was, was an up-and-coming kind of guy. He was a learned kind of guy. And, and, and this guy says to Jesus, and I'm paraphrasing, he says, you know, Jesus, I would love, I, I, I want to follow you. I would love to follow you. And Jesus gave him an answer he did not expect. And he says, my, my boy, listen to this. I don't know if he said my boy, but maybe he did. He said, foxes have, have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay down his head. What a surprising answer. What a surprising answer. I mean, are you sure that Jesus did not have a place of his own and his own camel or own donkey or own whatever? Are you sure? I am sure because he tells me that. All right? There was a teaching so many years ago is that, and, 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 and I don't, don't diss the fact that God has blessed some of us financially, but, but says Jesus was rich. He carried a money, money bag. <sighs> He wasn't rich. He wasn't rich, not from everything that we read in the Bible. So the same passage now, and the same passage that I'm mentioning, mentioned two other instances where people come to Jesus, and, 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 and both times he says, you know what, if you want to follow me, it's going to cost you. If you want to follow me, it's going to cost you. The scribe who wanted to follow Jesus, wherever Jesus went, was not considering Jesus' lifestyle. And that was going to be a put-off, and that's what Jesus knew. He says, my boy, if you understand my lifestyle, you are not going to follow me. And so Jesus says to him, I want to tell you one thing, I'm homeless. Uh, no ways. You mean we're not going to Branson this afternoon? 
We're not going to, no way. This, this, this now, Jesus, can I just go home and talk to my wife about this one? All right? So he, he and his disciples, if you go to Luke chapter 10, stayed in homes of other people wherever ever they went. Go and read Luke chapter 10 when he sent the 72 out, verse 1 to 10. And he says, uh, uh, you know, go into one another's homes. Bless the home. And if they don't receive you, move on. And he says, but, but don't go from home. Stay in, some, stay in somebody's home. Now, this is his own disciples not having their own places, staying with other people. In order to spread the gospel, they had very little of their own. You see, the scribes were among the wealthier citizens. And Jesus is not dishing uh, uh, or going against people with wealth. He's speaking about a heart issue. And he, and he knew if you were going to mention this to the scribe, the scribe was going to say, homeless? No, I'm a, are you sure you want to be homeless with me, Jesus said? Right at the nerve. The right spot. Even animals have places to stay, Jesus says, but I don't. And that passage in Luke chapter 14, it speaks about the cost of discipleship. I, I want to tell you this morning, if you're new to our faith, or if you came in because you want to just get blessings, that you've got to read these passages over and over. There is a cost to following the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes with a sacrifice to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes with a sacrifice. And, and you know, Jesus says, count that cost. Suppose one of you want to build a tower. And, and won't you first sit down and estimate the cost and see if you've got enough money to complete it? For, for if you lay the foundation, you can't finish the building. And then somebody would come and say, ha, ha, you know what? You're not able to finish this. Count the cost first. I want us to regularly count the cost of this discipleship, this following Christ. He does bless. But let me tell you, he's asking for sacrifice as well. Many followers of Christ, like the scribe, is expected Jesus to set up his kingdom. And at this stage, many were following him. The Bible says many followed him. And later the Bible says, and many stopped following him because the cost was too much. The cost was too much. You see, uh, Luke chapter 9 verse 11, it says, while they were listening to this, he went and told them the parable. And it says, because he was near Jerusalem and people thought that the kingdom of God was now going to appear at once. In other words, the scribe was one of many that walked off to Jesus and saying, kingdom is here. Blessings are coming. Positions are coming. I mean, I am a scribe, surely, and I'm not talking to the boss here. I'm talking to the, to the king here of the kingdom. Surely if I'm in his pocket, he's going to give me a job. And Jesus says, I don't have a house. Do you want to be homeless? Uh, let, let, me, let me think about that one. See, the scribe in Matthew chapter 8 was probably looking to follow Jesus straight into this earthly kingdom where he might be part of the ruling party there. But Jesus wanted to describe to this man and say, listen, to follow me may mean that you have no earthly glory. It may well mean that you have to share in my earthly suffering. You see, let me tell you, scribe, Mr. Young Scribe, I'm not offering you a throne on earth, but I do offer you a crown in heaven. The fact is that Jesus had nowhere to lay his head does not mean that some people with wealth, Christians with wealth, have to be shy and bothered and worried about it. But what he's saying to you is what place has that got in your life? Is that the priority? Jesus had a, 
Joseph of Arimathea in Matthew chapter 27, 57, who was significantly wealthy following him. So what I'm saying to you is I think every Christian should be willing to sacrifice and sacrifice sometimes all. And that's the challenge that God is putting to us as well. Every believer, listen carefully to me now, my friend. Every believer should be willing to give up any idol that stands in the way of following Christ wholeheartedly, whatever that is. And for many of us, it's sport. Oh, especially when it mixes and and, and clashes with your church commitments. Then sport is my idol. Then it is my idol. But in the end, what he's looking for is a heart. And sometimes God is saying, Ruloff, if that idol stands between you and me, say goodbye to it. Say goodbye to it. It's worth it. Each of us knows what that thing is. And I don't have to tell you, I think we know what those idols are. Because the Holy Spirit lives in us. But I don't know if we're all willing to say, I will lower them down. Lord, this idol that's competing with my love for you, I will lay it down. Maybe it will cost me a little bit. It will cause me some pain. It will cause me some anguish to lay this down. But I will do that as well. I will lay it down. We are all like the merchant who found the great pearl, or we should be like him. In Matthew chapter 13, listen to this, I love this, uh, this passage, 45 and 46, Matthew 13, it says, and again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one great, of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. In other words, that's how the kingdom of God is. You find something so much better. Will you give yourself to this completely? And serve God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength. Paul, in the New Testament, knew sacrifice. Paul knew sacrifice. And I'll give you two scriptures and there's others. He knew, Paul knew, the disciples knew that their faith in Christ, them following Jesus Christ, was probably going to cost them their lives. And yet they still did it. Listen to Paul, this very hour, and just in case you thought that the apostles were very rich people as well, and there's nothing against riches, but, but this is, listen to the apostles. This, this very hour, Paul is saying, we go hungry and thirsty. That sounds like somebody eating at hogs, whatever, or whatever, Tony's spaghetti this afternoon, you know. This very hour, we go hungry, we thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. This is Paul speaking. And then he says, oh man, but this was his security. And this is what I want and you want as well. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 1, he says, but listen, let me tell you, here's the good news. We may live like this from time to time. Jesus may ask us to sacrifice from time to time stuff as well. But we're busy building a, we're receiving a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. In other words, Paul is saying, this might be trouble, but what we get there, is amazing, is amazing. Foxes have dens, birds have nests. But in this world, we may do without. The apostles understood this, for we're looking forward to a place where we will rest our heads in the presence of God. That's what I'm looking forward to as well. Many years ago, my daughter was about four years old. Because as a family, and I know you can tell me stories as well, but I'm the preacher, so I, I can't tell your story. Always I'm telling my own story. Many years ago, 
my daughter was about four. She came to me, and, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I still do. My, my, my life belongs to Jesus, my family, and the church. And, and, and I'll tell you later what the priorities are. But that's, that's, that's been our lives. And we knew that. This was going to cost us something. This is going to cost us something. So my little girl, four years old, I can still see this little face in her pajamas, running to me at night. I'm off to another meeting. And she grabs my leg and says, Daddy, don't go to church again. Made a major impression, as you can believe, because I remember that 28 years later. Still remember that. But I couldn't stop doing what I'm doing. And I, all I prayed at that moment, I said, Lord Jesus, give me the grace, my wife and I, to take our children with us as we sacrifice and serve you and love you. You know, people say, I don't know, but you must understand, you know, serving God is one thing, but don't get me involved in the church because I've got small children, you know. Now, let me be blatantly honest with you. I don't understand because I brought my kids to church in nappies, in blankets, sick, I brought them to church. They sat and screamed louder than the other kids because they were playing with your kids. They were more naughty sometimes because they were influenced. But I brought my kids to church and I said, this is where we live. You got it, eh? I said, this is, where I, this is, this is our home. This, this, is, this is where we, where we give our lives and sacrifice. This is where, we're serving Jesus, guys. I taught my kids that. We taught our kids that. So they came with their duvets and, 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 and stuff to, to meetings. And, and you know what? They, we taught them that the church is not perfect. I mean, look at the people. The church is not perfect. The church gonna cause you some pain, but the church has got glory days as well. Love the church like that because Jesus died for it. And our kiddies saw some stuff in their lives about church and they've learned to love the church because they just like them, like us, one of them, not perfect. Servanthood takes sacrifice. Let me tell you something. And a story in our days now. You look at the Springboks and you say, wow, they play, and they're playing good rugby, aren't they? Now? Those of you rugby lovers, the other says, oh, you know what, that ball is not round enough. You know, so it, doesn't, it bounces funny, you know. I don't watch that game. They're playing phenomenal rugby. You know, you know what Rassi Erasmus did in the beginning of this year? And he says, normally when they play the Super 12, uh, uh, they wait for the Super 12 to finish, uh, or Super 15 or 14 or whatever it is now. And then they take, they take the players afterwards and they take them in a camp. And then they have, not Camp Staldraat, but they have, they have a camp where they now train them. Not, that's what they normally do. What he did this year is he took all the players, a number of them. He shared this at a breakfast that some guys were at and told me about it. And he said to them all, he says, come, I want to talk to all of you. All the possibilities of, of guys who could be maybe in, in this rugby squad. Let's have a meeting. We're playing the World Cup this year. So the moment you fall out of and you lose in the Super 14, you're coming to camp. You're leaving your family and you're leaving your children and you won't see them until after the World Cup. This is what he did. So one by one, five by fives, as the Lions were the first because they were on the bottom of the, so all the Lions players was at camp first. The Blue Bulls were one of the last ones to arrive because they were playing good rugby. I mean, last night, didn't we show that as well? In spite of a fraught referee, we still beat you guys. You know? So anyway, so, so now these guys are arriving there. And he says, guys, you're not going to see your family. Now, I, wanna not, I, I want you to tell me something. This is, and, and it's genuine. And he said to them, I want, you, I want you to tell me whether you can do this. And some of the players said, coach, we can't. Good players. We can't sacrifice our family for this game. And he says, so be it. 
So be it. And he took the players and saying, I'm willing. I wonder what it's going to mean for you and me. What will we sacrifice to play on Jesus' team? What will it be? What idol will I sacrifice to say, I'll do this because I want to play on your team, Jesus. Team Jesus. That's what I want to play on. You know, let me move on. Servanthood is not just about a few good deeds. Servanthood is my nature. It should be in my nature. Servanthood requires sacrifice. And the last one quickly here, and I think it's so important for this morning, is servanthood is not about power, but it's about relinquishing power. You know, and unfortunately, that's not the day we live in. And I hope, and I, I would like to broadcast this message over and over until I die, is that, hey, guys, servanthood, pastors, leaders, this is not about gaining power. This is about his power and releasing and, and relinquishing my own rights and my own power as a pastor, as a leader. It doesn't mean I become a non-leader, but it means that I don't have the power that he has. You see, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Although he was God in flesh, he did not use his force that he could have used to convince and persuade people. Think about it. He could have overpowered everyone, forcing everyone to believe and to repent, terrorizing people into right behavior and response. But this is not, was not, and will not be in the nature of Jesus. He could have used an army of angels to convert everybody. He could have taken advantage of who he was as God to use it in his own interest. Instead, he emptied himself, made himself nothing, took on the nature of a bond slave, of a servant, and paid a ransom for you and me. He was God, but he didn't use his power to take advantage, he used his service to get you and, my, you and I to believe what we believe today. It wasn't his power, it was his service that he used to get you and I. You see, power can be dangerous. It is very dangerous. And power has destroyed many people in churches. Let me read to you, and, and you've got to go and read this on, on our website. My notes will be there uh, by, by Monday afternoon. Let me read something that Henry Nowen wrote in his book, In the Name of Jesus. It's a long three, three paragraphs, so I'm going to give it to you, and, and you can go and read it again and meditate on this. Uh, first paragraph is this. It says, um, when I asked myself the main reason for so many people having left the church during the past decades, the word power easily came to mind. One of the greatest ironies in the history of Christianity is that its leaders constantly gave into the temptation of power, political power, military power, economic power, moral and spiritual power. Even though they continued to speak in the name of Jesus who did not cling to his divine power but emptied himself and became as we are, power. Next paragraph, it gets better. The temptation to consider power an apt instrument for the proclamation of the gospel is the greatest of all. What makes the temptation of power so seemingly irresistible? Maybe it is that power offers us an easy substitute to the hard work of love. Wow. Wow. It seems easier to be God than to love God. Easier to control people than to love people. Easier to own life than to love life. And Jesus asked, do you love me? And we, we, we said, can we sit at your right hand and your left hand in the kingdom? Last paragraph. Ever since the snake said, the day you eat of this, your eyes will be opened and you will be like gods, knowing good from evil. We have been tempted to replace love with power. 
Jesus lived that temptation in the most agonizing, agonizing way from the desert to the cross. The long, painful history of the church is the history of people ever and again tempting to choose power over love, control over the cross, being a leader over being led. And those who resisted this temptation to the end and therefore give us hope are the true saints. I can sit on that the whole day and just think, wow, what does it mean to me, for me, you? Jesus was the greatest servant, my friend, the ultimate servant leader, the pinnacle of servanthood. He was the model servant, the model of servanthood. And we should do everything above all to aspire to be him and to follow his ultimate example. The symbol of our greatness is not demonstrated by our willingness to grab a trophy. It is by our willingness to grab a towel. Many of us are running for the trophy. I think we're going to get surprised. And Jesus says, in eternity, I'm just going to tell you, I'll give you a towel. You can continue what I did. And you go, oh, man, I didn't come for this. You know, this fascinating story in John chapter 13, I'm almost done. So Jesus, before the Passover meal, has his disciples around. And, he, and, and, and let me tell you how it happened in those days because there was no tar roads and stuff like that. And, and some of the roads were, 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 were paved, but most of the roads were just dust. So people wore, wore sandals. They were not closed shoes and so on. So they would arrive at your house. Their shoes would be dirty, smelly. Their feet would be dirty and smelly. So there would be the, a servant sitting at the, at the door there. You would take off your shoes and leave it at the door. And somebody would wash your stinky, smelly feet there. And you would go inside. Now this may have already happened when Jesus had his disciples over. But Jesus then would sit and, and they, were, they were sharing the meal. Now they had no clue what, what, it, what he was doing and what he was going to do. And so they were sitting around and Jesus stopped and he, and he took out a towel and started to speak to them. And I'm paraphrasing this. You can go and read it. And he says, guys, I'm going to wash your feet. Peter, the big mouth, the extrovert, the sanguine says, uh-uh, not mine. Oh, uh, uh, you can't do that. And Jesus said to me, my boy, listen, he says, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you're going to understand. And that later, I hope, has come for all of us. And Jesus says, you don't understand. He says, no, 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 you, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus says, Peter, if I do not wash your feet, you have no part of me. Folks, read this whole story in context, in context here. If I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. Pause that because the second bit is tough. It's coming. Okay, so, so Peter says, okay, then, then wash my whole body. <laughs> Just do the whole tooth, you know? And Jesus says, no, 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 you have already had a bath. You're clean. Only your feet need to be washed. You are clean, but some of us, there's a person here among us that's not clean, referring to Judas. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done? I don't know if Peter had an answer for that as well. You see, let me take you back to verse 8. Unless I wash your feet, you have no part of me. Now the next bit says, do you understand what I've done for you? He says, you call me teacher and Lord rightfully so. But now that I am your Lord, I am your teacher, I am who you say I am, 
I have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. Could it be that Jesus says, unless you do that, you'll also not have part of me? Servitude is not optional. It's not occasional. It's a heart. It's a hard issue. Then he says, I have set you an example you, that you should do, not when you like to, when you feel like, as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master. And he says, now that you know all of these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Do we understand what it means to be blessed by God? It's to be a servant. That's blessing. You see, what Jesus is saying, and I'm, I'm gonna end with a few quotes here, is what Jesus is saying is, I did it for you. I expect you to do the same for me. Go and be a servant. Go and wash some feet. Go and grab a towel. Not a crown. Not a cup. A towel. Did you hear me? He says, Rolof, a towel. Because you're gonna wash some feet. But Lord, I would like to be standing on a, in those days, I was a young preacher or a young, young kid, and, and these pulpits were about as high as this roof. And I thought, man, that's where I want to be. And Jesus said, you know what? You're going to suffer a little bit by doing this stuff. People are going to eat you for lunch every Sunday. You're going to be a roast. A towel, Rulof. A towel. Not a reward, a towel. The rewards are outside. Craig D. Lansborough says these words, the most formidable way to lead is to serve. And while this perplexing, and, and while the perplexing oxymoron of such a grinding statement absolutely cripples us, it birthed the Savior. There's some stuff to take home. You're not going to remember it, but you can find it on the website. The same guy says, if I'm not a servant to others, by process of elimination, I am then a servant to myself. And that serves no one. I wish I was clever like this. The last one here. If God is going to be all that he is, I must reach a point where I am emptied of all that I am. And the only way that the fullness of God has space in the emptiness, it's the only way then that the fullness of God has space in the emptiness of me.